0: Hello, friends and listeners. I am happy to have you back for a new episode of the Thos Hermes podcast. And if this is the first time you're listening to this show, let me welcome you and hope that you will enjoy and will not only return to the upcoming features, but also will listen to all the previous episodes that are already available. This is episode 10 in our season 3. So, overall, already our 30-second regular episode. Add to this the new Ex Libris episodes and some special issues, that means next time the 40th issue of Thought Service will be made available. Thanks to your interest and fidelity, this has all become possible. And I'm very grateful to all of those who have participated so far, and especially to all of you, our listeners. My name is Rudolf. I am your host, welcoming you from not far from the lovely city of Vienna, Austria. Today is October the 20th, 2019. We are approaching slowly Sohen, or Halloween, as we ever call it, and the year, is also slowly drawing towards the dark times. So cuddle in and listen to Thoth Hermes. You can find all our previous episodes as well as the show notes on www.thoughthermes.com. That is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com. But of course, also on all major podcast providers like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Android, etc., etc. And there is also a Thought Hermes channel on YouTube with all the episodes in audio format. Afraid to miss an episode? Well... Next to subscribing on your podcast outlet, you also might want to go on our website and subscribe to the newsletter there, which will not only announce you each episode, but from time to time also tell you other news from Thoth Hermes and what we are planning for the future. On the website, you can also drop me a line via a contact form or send a voicemail or send me an email on info at thoshermes.com, a message on Twitter or on Facebook. All of this would be greatly appreciated. Also today, I need to pester you again. This podcast is free and the regular episodes will always stay so. But the more I produce, the more I'm watching for good content and sound quality, the more costs it creates to me and Therefore, I do need your support. It would really be nice and needed that a few more of you who enjoy this show become patrons and support the podcast with a small donation, either one-off or a subscription via Patreon, which starts as low as $2 per episode. Thanks to all of you who have already done so. Just a detail. If it happens that in one month there would be more than three episodes, patrons, whatever the donation level is, will never get charged more than the first three episodes per month. So please go on the Patreon webpage, look for the Thought Hermes podcast, or go to our website on the homepage, you will find the button for one off donations via PayPal and the button that links you directly to our page on Patreon. Thank you very much. And here comes a message from our sponsor. Anathema Publishing Limited Quality Occult Books and Contemporary Esoterica Established in 2011 Anathema Publishing aims to provide superior literature in content and form by creating a triune relationship between publisher, author and reader. Anathema Publishing produces refined books for the true bibliophile on topics ranging from Gnosticism, traditional craft, alchemy, hermeticism, Witchcraft to Luciferian Philosophy. www.anathemapublishing.com. At the end of our last episode, I had announced for today our guest to be Nick Farrell. For programming reasons, I needed to change that a bit and a bit last minute, but no worries for all of you who have expected and looked forward to hear Nick today, he will be here with us in two weeks in episode eleven. The interview has already been recorded, I am sure you will enjoy it. but today we are going to welcome a very special guest and I'm really happy to be able to welcome today Madeleine Le Disbenser on Thought Hermes. Madeleine is probably rather well known to many of you who navigate on Facebook. She is a very special personality, a visual artist, author. She's calling herself demi-mondaine, absenteuse, adoratrice de Satan. Well, quite a mysterious person, I would say. And we are going to try to lift the mystery a bit today. But before we do that, as always, there will be a first piece of music. The mix of pieces for today is rather eclectic, from pop to classics, and that goes well together with personality of our guest. In fact, I have asked Madeleine to give me her choices, and I think what she chose was brilliant. Do you remember T-Rex? No, I don't mean the big dinosaur from Jurassic Park, but the British rock band by that name with singer Mark Bolin. Mark got killed in a car accident in central London in 1977, which meant also the end of the band, and That might explain why maybe the younger among you have not yet heard about this typical glam rock group. T-Rex, or Tyrannosaurus Rex by their full name, with frontman Mark Bolan, will now appear here on the Thos Hermes podcast with one of their greatest hits, from the album Bandy in the Underworld. Teen Riot Structure. <laughs> Teen,
1: Teen Riot Structure Let's be happy and closed. Licked upon my lollipop But I didn't get the joke As devastation mounted My wardrobe's almost blue The teens had hands on shifting sands Wonder what they'd learn.
0: riot structure by british group t-rex from the album dandy in the underworld their last album in fact and that was our first musical step into this episode to do the interview with madeleine le dispenser was really very enjoyable for me she is such a knowledgeable intelligent person she knows an awful lot and has very strong and interesting opinions But as I said earlier, she is also kind of a mystery, and I will not try to explain that here in my intro, because she will do that much better through the answers to my questions. But there is one thing that I really would like to ask you this time. I always say it would be good for you to go and read the show notes on the Thought Hermes website, because it always provides you with supplementary information. But this time, there is more to it. It was Madeleine herself, she has done me the favour, as we mentioned also in the interview, to collect those links, and there are many of them this time in the show notes, the links about the books and authors and the historical figures she mentions in the interview, and they might not all be known to all of you listening out there. But it would also really be a pity if you don't grab this opportunity and use these links and the information she collected for us because there are fascinating facts and stories behind it. So do yourself a favor and have a look. In the middle of this interview, which as usual lasts just a bit over an hour, we will, as always, take a break to listen to some music. But now sit down, concentrate and listen to this very inspiring talk with Madeleine Ledispencer. Here comes the interview. It is an enormous pleasure to have a very special guest with me here tonight on the South Hermes podcast. Um, uh, we have gone to London tonight and we are going to speak, and we are speaking now to Madeleine Le Dispencer, uh who I've wished to have online with me for some time. And not only me, but a few of you listeners actually have asked me to speak with her. And here we are finally. Good evening, Madeleine. Hello.
2: Good evening. Thanks for having me
0: tonight. Great to have you here. So you've just returned from a violin lesson I learned. So that's amazing. I didn't know you were also also doing that. Uh, together with many other things and exactly that's what I think is fascinating about you as a personality and I also that's what triggered uh, quite a a number of uh, uh, listeners here to ask me for that interview because um, you are a kind of a very well known on the internet and in the occult circles personality at the same time you're a very mysterious personality and no, like well, we'll try uh, <laughs> yeah, I think you like that. I thought you would like it, but uh, I'm serious, I mean it, and um, let's try to shed as much light on that personality as you want tonight. Uh, yeah. we have an hour for that, so let's try. let me start with something that's from your web page actually, when you click on your webpage about Madeleine, right mm-hmm. um and it says there uh you are demimond, you are absentus, right and uh, Adoratrice de Satan. So that's all very French. We won't speak French tonight, even though we could, (laughs) but we won't, we said. Um, But um, A, you chose those terms in French for good reason, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But maybe we could go one by one in those three terms and then take it from there. Let's start with Demi-Mondaine. What is for you a Demi-Mondaine and how do you live it?
2: Um, Well, I chose the... All three of those, I chose the, the, to, to write them in French, specifically for the sort of the nuance and the implications that they have um, mm-hmm. with the uh, with the, um, the the language difference. For demi monde so uh, denizen of the the half world, the um, mm-hmm. the underworld, maybe a little bit um, questionable in morals and questionable in um, uh, their. Uh, um, <clears throat> Fittingness for uh, for common society. Um, there's the implications of the uh, the Bohemian, um, the you know the uh, uh, someone on the liminal end of the spectrum, uh, the edges of society. There's suggestions of the the, the sex worker or the courtesan. Um, it has all these lovely sort of implications. And for me, it's it's simply just um, I take great pleasure uh, and relish in. Um, Finding myself at home um, on the periphery um, or on the fringes of of things, not necessarily by design. Um, it just seems like uh, like flies to honey, uh, just drawn there, um, and uh, it's a very natural seating. And um, so when I when I came across the idea of the demi monde and the demi mondial, I thought, oh, that's that's lovely. So I had it printed on my business cards. It seemed like a particularly nice way of uh introducing oneself you know if i had to sum up the uh, the totality of what what i do uh, i decided to to just put it there and um yeah so that that's how i
0: would classify right them. you you just said something very interesting you printed it on your business card mm-hmm. and um you're also an occultist you are a satanist left hand path occultist is that would that also be correct or would that be but also I something you <laughs> I know, I know, but at the same time, a very special Catholic. But we're coming into that a bit later, <laughs> won't we? Um, but it is still, you are writing in that in that field and you are mm-hmm, specialists yeah. in that field. And it's rare, I would think, that those people have business cards. So, well,
2: it's uh, like a, a carte de visite, or a calling card. I thought, mm-hmm. you know, it's one of those things. I think that, that one of the things that I love about life is for everything to be very considered. Um, right. I think we, we do a lot of things that we simply take for granted or we just don't give any consideration to them at all. And I thought it would be quite nice to have a calling card. There's no mm-hmm. email address or phone number on it. There's simply a okay. um, British monomark's postal box. So if someone wants to contact me, right. they actually have to go through a bit of effort through that card. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I've been actually fortunate to have some really lovely postal mail come in as a result of it. And, uh, I love that. So it's just, I, I thought it would be nice to have, you know, that, um, that tangible um, sort of object that, um, mm-hmm. that acts as, as sort of a, um, a greeting and you know, a, a memory and a, a means of leaving a mark in, um, in, in an interaction. Because I, I get mm-hmm. to meet lots of people here in London
0: I'm at sure. uh,
2: book launches and art events and just out and about. So it just seemed like a natural mm-hmm. thing to have
0: right no no it's great it's not a criticism at all i just no, find no, it interesting because there you are um uh, also different from others and i like that and and let's go back to the, what you just said that being always a bit on the edge and on the limits on th- between two worlds in a way could th- would that also be a, a typical feature of yourself between two worlds
2: i think so i think um you know, for, for one reason or another, I do tend to find myself in that type of interstitial space. Um, -hmm. you know, when I say on, on the edge, I don't necessarily mean on kind of a, um, you know, on on a provocative edge, although sometimes some things may be more provocative than others, but it's Mm -hmm. more of just, um, you know, there's, there are various aspects of my life that I do think I do find myself seated in that sort of, uh, periphery or in that liminality. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. been quite natural and it's, I think it's kind of a lovely space.
0: Right, right. Well, let's take the second term that you used, absinthe. So absinthe, mm-hmm. we all know, that is also a very French feature which has been used especially in the late 19th, early 20th century. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, um, yeah. uh, a green type of alcohol that has been used also to induce um, states of elevated consciousness so to speak Mm -hmm. um so why did you choose that term to characterize yourself
2: uh because i am passionate about absinthe i love absinthe uh i think it also calls back to that idea of things being considered and things Mm -hmm. having a ritual about them and things having an opulence and opulence doesn't have to be expensive it doesn't have to be um, you know, something that requires an enormous amount of, of financial means. It can simply be, as far as I'm concerned, a very considered and, and deliberate approach to a manner of living and um, absence I think is is wonderful in that it really encapsulates this sort of ritualized opulent space that you can share with a like-minded people. You can get together with a small group, which i'll do often i'll host small absinthe parties at my home or um, Uh at a couple absinthe bars in in London. And there's just something so wonderful about the the spirit and the spirit of the spirit um, and the history of it and sort of the, you know, some of the the misconceptions and the mythology that sprung up around it, which aren't necessarily true, but it does form kind of an egregore around the whole idea of the drink. I've got an an essay coming out in a a book for Three Hands Press at some point, specifically about absinthe and the and the history right. of the spirit. That and, shall
0: be interesting you should let us know because yeah. I'm sh- I would like to let my audience know when that when that will be out
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah absolutely uh, what's the exact English uh, correct translation of la fé verte because it's often called the green. Uh, um, Yeah, the green fairy,
2: green fairy, green
0: fairy. It's called okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, and then the third term. Here we are, adoratrice de Satan, Uh, and that at the same time. So, Satanist is not exactly the correct translation of adoratrice de Satan. It's there is a nice difference in between the two. But a Catholic who is adoring Satan—that's something new. So. How do you though? put that together? Well, do, do do Well, come on, come on. <laughs> Why is it not new? <laughs>
2: I don't, I see. I, I I don't really think of it as something new. It seems quite natural. It seems the only um, blasphemy can mm-hmm. occur within uh, a, a deep seated sense of the sacred. So, you know, a black mass is meaningless. True, yeah. You don't go to mass uh, if you mm-hmm. don't believe in transubstantiation. If you don't say your rosaries, then you know what are you? what are you kicking against? It's sort of like, it's what I tend to call a uh, sort of um, an adolescent contrarianism. Um, whereas it seems quite natural that, um, you know, if you, if you look at, and I chose specifically Adoratrice de Satan because of the fact that it is the the woman who adores Satan. It is not necessarily Satanist. And it does call mm-hmm. to mind everything from, um, you know, the, uh, um the, uh, the, the, the black masses of the 19th century and the 18th century and uh, the devils of Ludon and just that whole tradition right. of this very interesting kind of um, folk, Catholic paranoia around the idea of Satan and Satan being so entwined with the church. And, you know, it's like oftentimes we think of this satanic panic as being something that's a specifically American and, and British 1980s phenomena, mm. but it was it's very not, much no. entwined in, in the, the history of of um you know european christianity but especially in france
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, where does your love or your well maybe it's love or what well, define it for yourself. your interest for france and french history and french habits and all of that where does that come from
2: i don't know maybe it's a sort of just in my in my genes my my family um you know, originally, many, many, many years ago, came. Um, mm-hmm. I like to say that they came. They came across the channel with the, the Guillaume le Conquérant. Uh, uh, I was
0: going to say fifty percent of the of the British people came from France, <laughs> didn't they? Yeah, they would don't yeah. like to hear that nowadays. But it is, I know it, they always back. get so angry
2: when I say my ancestors <laughs> civilized them. But you know. <laughs> But it's, um, there, there's, there's a, a familiar connection there, and it's just, I, um, I had uh, French in, the uh, French language uh, very early in school, um, and I about nine years old, ten years old, they started us on, on French, and, um, the school that I was going to in America, and uh, I just, I, I like it, and all of my, my favorite artists and, and art has typically come from uh, France and Belgium, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of it comes from... I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine who's part of the British Association of Decadence, um, and I was talking about the very first time I, I, I came to France and the first time I came to England, and how I did note the the difference in, in art um, uh, just being before, being in the museums, and I felt like there might be something to the idea of a Catholic a predominantly Catholic country, um, where you don't have that Protestant notion of work ethic. You don't have the idea that work brings salvation. So there's a value on leisure and art in a different manner maybe than you have in a predominantly sort of Protestant society. And I don't know how accurate that is, but it does seem to me that there is just something in the, uh, the art and the literature in, in, in France, and especially in the 19th century, that really appeals mm-hmm. to me, uh, especially the so-called decadence.
0: Uh, certainly mysticism is much more present in Catholicism than it is in Protestantism. That's, I would think, I I think that's for sure. On the other hand, one could say, Against what you're just saying, and, and the arts from the 19th century downwards, that France has at the very early stage and still is one of the very few laïcist, uh, they call it, so uh, countries where religion and state are strictly, very strictly separated. So, and especially, I, I have lived for 11 years in France, so and I I have worked in the performing arts business there, so I know a bit what I'm talking about there, uh-huh. and especially in the arts world today, Um, they make a very clear distinction. Uh, They are very much... State oriented, if you want, and oh, not yeah. and there's, not uh, church oriented. So, how does that go together for in your in your in your feeling?
2: Well, I mean, in 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 current modernity, in the current age, there's definitely a an enforced secularization, uh, but mm. it's still, I mean, it still bubbles under the surface. There's the, oh. you know, when they had uh, the Dauphin's heart on display back, I think, ten years ago, it was just crowds came to see mm. that as as mm. a relic. There is. There has always been this sort of creeping undercurrent of um, uh, sort of royalist and uh, like the Nandorfist cause. And, you know, the, the entire French occult revival is basically is underlined with this one continuous theme of almost anti-Republican, anti-French Revolution, um, anti-secularization, uh, it's sort of a pushback against that. And even, I mean, there's much writing on, on decadent literature talks about the fact that it is – um, really uh, the first Catholic literary movement um, whereas you had sort of sentimental writing about the church and you had sentimental writing about religious experiences but when you take um, you know, writers like Huisman or uh, Leon Bloy and look at the way they uh, used their Catholicism or their conversion as a pushback against uh, what they saw as the secularizing rationalist modernity that was creeping in and changing the world for the worst. So mm-hmm. that, I, I think that that that, frisian, that fris- frisson between those two mm-hmm. uh, extremes is, is very important as a characterizing factor that makes all that so interesting. That if you didn't yeah. have that kind of um, almost personality crisis, um, if you didn't have that history of like blood sacrifice birthing the Republic, then I don't think it would have produced the same type of art or the same type mm-hmm. of culture.
0: That that's probably very true. Yes, yes. Um, do you did you also read the works of René Guénon? For any, very, uh, well,
2: I, I'm familiar, but I haven't. I have not read him. Mm-hmm. I I need to get to him. He's one on the list that I really do need to get Be- because to because
0: it also gets into that exactly that mm-hmm. that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. that uh, Even though at the end he became a, a Sufi, funny enough, so mm-hmm. it, he went into another direction of mysticism. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
0: Um. Well. Can we now that we spoke a bit all the things that define you today and the well, well define yes we are part of you today? Let's put it that way. And um, maybe can we go as much as you want back in your life? You said you were educated in America. You you have a background, a familiar back, fami- family background, far back in France. Can we? Can we know a bit about your past and how you became that demi-mondaine absenteuse that you are today? Um, where did it all start and how did that all come together?
2: Ah, oh, let's see. Gosh, it's a wide-ranging question. I, we have um, time.
0: Don't take your time. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I well, I was raised in a very uh, religious conservative uh, household and um, mm very very religious very um structured upbringing i went to uh, in america it'd be called a private school so i went to a private religious school um catholic environment or? no it was actually not it was um mm-hmm. it was a denomination my parents were of a different denomination but they chose the mm-hmm. school because it was they felt that it was a good school and mm-hmm. um would be beneficial for for me having we had just moved into the american south from um uh, Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, which is still part of the American South, but not quite the same yeah. as going to Georgia. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and I spent most of my youth in like you know youth groups and church camps and mm-hmm. having to endure all that really awful, banal interpretations of the numinous uh, and reducing them down to the lowest common denominator. I still, mm-hmm. to this day, will walk out of a mass if I see an acoustic guitar, if I come in. Mm-hmm. I've had my fill of acoustic guitars and <laughs> the Narthax. Um So, yeah, um, yeah. So that was that. Um, that was my upbringing. Um, still very close to my family. I think uh, they. Uh, at about high school, I um, I left high school. I dropped out and took what's called a GED, which is a general education diploma, uh, uh-huh. and then went to a community college. So I ended up going to college early.
0: Does that make you a teacher? The GED is that what it is, or, or? no? GED
2: is no? when you don't finish high school and you actually take a ah, okay. general education diploma. Right, so what right, I did right. was I left. I was so disgusted because I, I went to a public high school, so I left high school. Or I left. Yeah, you know, I went into high school and I went into a public school, and um it's just I didn't. Um, I didn't do well. I didn't. uh uh, you know, I, I, I was not socially inept. I could engage with people. It's there's, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for, um, not being the type of person that says, I can't make small talk or I just can't engage with people. I mean, it's, you need to be able to engage with people to be a functioning member of the world. It's mm-hmm. not a badge of honor, but I found it very, very boring. And, um, I, uh, acted out a bit. I was a teenager, so I, uh, I ended up leaving and then going to college early. Um, mm-hmm. so something a very, um, unconventional path which uh, my mother encouraged me on which she's always been very encouraging to me even though she's you know very very religious and sometimes was puzzled by my proclivities uh, she's (laughs) always been very very supportive so I think that kind of very conservative very religious upbringing definitely had an impact on me um and 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 pushed me towards the directions I took in adulthood
0: yeah sure but so you were born in the states or born in in the UK so
2: no, I was born in America and okay. um, mm-hmm. lived there for, um, you know, all up, up into my into my twenties and early thirties, and then I lived for a time, a long time, in New Zealand, which oh, is right. very far away from everything and probably <laughs> the most diametrically opposed place to my nature that I could possibly go.
0: <laughs> I, I'm amazed, Midland, You're the third person now, uh, almost in a row, that I interview here. I've had. A guy who is going by the name of Rubafilo Salvuere. I don't know if you know uh-huh. him. I've had Nick Farrell lately in front of his mic. All of you went to uh, New Zealand for <laughs> and got educated there. That's amazing.
2: It's <laughs> funny. There's, you know, there's a very interesting occult draw to New Zealand. The builder, uh, yeah, absolutely. Bota, I found out, yeah. there and the wire rock exactly. is there. Absolutely. Uh, there is no, even. Oh, amazing! Uh, yeah.
0: yeah. Some, no, 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 you, you go on. So you went to, I, I interrupted you, sorry. You went to New Zealand. So, so, and, yeah, and so I was
2: in New Zealand. And, and I always say that New Zealand's a beautiful place and lovely place. And if you're interested in tramping and camping in the outdoors, it's probably, you know, very much uh, a place that you'd enjoy being. But I personally despise the countryside. I love the city. Mm. Uh, nature it doesn't particularly interest me. So, um, <laughs> the impression, I, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm very much at home in this, this sort of Luciferian cathedral of a city where I live now. London is beautiful. <laughs> I think it's the most wonderful city in the world. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, when did you come back to the UK or come back, come to the UK and started living there? Uh, about four years ago. Okay. Uh, that, I, was, that, ah, I mm-hmm. thought it was longer already. Mm-hmm. You, okay. 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 So, and now you're an established Londoner.
2: Yeah, I uh, I complain about the tube and uh so, and do all of those
0: I, things well, that Londoners do. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to say that's a typical Londoner today. Okay, so and you you are you live in London now and you also have on your website you say you're not your say, you are. You're an artist, a visual artist, an author. Um so let's also speak about that before we go a bit further into the occult maybe and into the because of course as you know this this podcast is about the western esoteric and occult traditions Um so we should also speak about that involvement that you have there but before that maybe of course those things cannot be separated but um, how would you define your art your visual art what what a, what techniques do you use there, and um, what's important for you by showing yourself as a visual artist?
2: I uh, I'm a sculptor. I'm mm-hmm. trained as a sculptor. I did um, uh, and and an anatomist. So um, my main medium is sculpture, and that could be uh, clay, or it could be wax, or it could even be digital. Um, mm. I, I uh, over time. Uh, did a lot of work with sort of digital sculpting and then 3D printing for um, for foundry casting. Um, so my training was actually in, in, in art was as a, as a um, classical realist sculptor. I did um, a degree in anatomy and drawing, and then went to the Florence Academy of Art. And, and we've got a siren going by.
3: There we go. Well, you're uh, a Londoner. Went, that's okay. <laughs> yeah.
2: uh, I went to the Florence Academy of Art and did um, um, sort of a an atelier style learning, which is the style that you would learn the manner in which you would learn, um, sculpting in the 19th century, um, mm-hmm. before sort of, you know, the idea of Bauhaus completely destroyed arts education. And mm-hmm. then, um, after that, I did a cadaver lab at uh university of Utah medical school and also Lake Merritt medical school, uh, I right. did about 60 hours of cadaver, uh, mm-hmm. dissection. And so, um, I would, describe my work, I'm very influenced by um, sort of sacred art, um, you know, the Catholic iconography, um, Byzantine icons, um, mm-hmm. and I really like the idea of representing sort of the, the abject or the unsettling or the uncanny uh, couched in this sort of ambiance of the sacred or the beautiful um, mm-hmm. and the adored. So that's that's kind of how I would ca- characterize that work. Um,
0: Can you define what it is that that attracts you in 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 that? Well, is that definable for you, or is it just there?
2: Uh, it's it's a natural inclination, but I think if I if I were to sort of intellectualize it or dissect it, it's just this. You know, I I love the idea of the the abject being raised to. The, the the place of the sacred, for example, um, you know, a lot of times he's he's considered to be very sensationalistic, but in, there was uh, the photographer Joel Peter Witkin, and he was a huge influence on me when I was um, you know very early on, because Witkin would take. Um, cadavers or he would take people from the fringes of society. He would take um, sex workers. um, He would take uh, criminals, people who um, had physical differences, physical deformities, take um, transsexuals and transvestites, and he would pose them and recreate these beautiful classical images. And to me, I always took that as being alchemy. He was taking these people and these these images, mm-hmm. these things that we cast off or consider to be on the periphery or the edges of society, and he was enshrining them in this sort of um uh these, these the iconography literally the images that we laud as being the finest images in in western art mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know he, has, he would do um a Botticelli for example um but reproduce it, you know, with these 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 people that would otherwise you would pass on the street and and try and avoid, or you would um, try and keep out of sight that people don't want to acknowledge. So I always love that sort of alchemical aspect there, and I mm-hmm. think that's what what draws me to the idea mm-hmm. of um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: these um, the abject as being sacred.
0: Right. That's an interesting. Well. I, I, to say it with that word alchemical, I find that a very, very interesting approach. Yeah, so you speak a lot about sacred. The sacred. You speak a lot about the 19th century. You speak a lot about um, the, the, the dark side, if I may say it a bit uh, in a bit in a in a, in a cliché way. Um, so See, I, I
2: consider it, I consider myself so full of light. I don't consider any of it dark. Really? I always, always, no, not at all. I think I always. I'm very careful not to to be in darkened. I think that there's a huge difference between the dark and being in mm-hmm. darkened and being encumbered and being yeah. Um, yeah. ordinary yeah. and slow and plodding. It's like that Simone Weil quote about you know imaginary evil and, and real evil. And, you know mm-hmm. real evil. Maybe we should together
0: find find a better word for dark because uh, for me yeah. dark is not something negative. I don't mm-hmm. mean that negative at all. Uh, dark is just uh, I, I'm a hermeticist myself, you know. Yeah. So yeah. for me, it's just less light. But light is not a good thing. Light is just mm-hmm. something, and oh, where yeah. it goes, it's where it goes. It's bright, and where it does not go, it's dark. So it's not yeah. a quality; it's in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what would be the word? What would be the word that you'd choose to to replace dark in the context that I meant? To? Oh,
2: I don't know. I take I take your meaning. I'm not trying to be difficult. It's, just, it's always no, I no, always no, no, no. feel like the um you know there's so much of a you know there's so so many people don't take that nuanced approach to it. They don't right. think about light and dark in that way. They don't think they think um there's a lot of time and effort spent on being very. Dog, <laughs> or as Jake Stratton Kent spells it, D A R Q U E, <laughs> and um, you know, I think um, going back to visual art, I mean, the best way I can describe that is I, I, when I first encountered Odilon uh, Redon, and I realized just how terrifying and just how all-encompassing and just how nightmarish, beautiful, vibrant color could be. I was mm-hmm. like, ah, oh, that was a big epiphany for like a 15-year-old who admittedly was, you know, quite undarkened. Um mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, um, but I didn't mean to derail you. Go on.
0: No, 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 you don't, you don't. I I, I like listening to you because that leads me to an next question. So don't you worry. Sure. So, um, sacred 19th century or mm-hmm. whatever is not dark but dark. Um, <laughs> um, uh, how how do you unite that what 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 brings that combination in you together so why is the 19th century for you so fascinating in that context um
2: oh also- i think because Oh, sorry go on no go ahead, go ahead i i think um it just happens to be the era where um i i found so much art and literature that i identified with i think mm-hmm. um you know that's it's, it's just before you know the the catastrophe of World War I that absolutely changed Europe for the worst mm-hmm. um much more than
0: World War two which was just a sequel in a way but yeah,
2: yeah yeah i mean it's really you right. almost consider it one big long war really definitely um but i think um you know it's 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 awful what what happened as a result of that you know you have
3: mm, sure.
2: um the change I remember reading um uh, a collector of Victorian paintings who was trying to purchase uh, a Lord Leighton that was in a in a in a, um, a thrift shop and bring it home, and his grandmother wouldn't let him bring it home. It was like the 1950s, I think. He's like, I won't, mm-hmm. I won't have any of that Victorian nonsense in my home because this mm-hmm. uh, people had become so, you know, so burned by the horror, so jaded by um, by the experience of of the First mm-hmm. World War. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that it's a very interesting. Um, Moment, because I think it's best summed up. Because it's it's modern, it is modern, but it's also not. It's also harkening back to, for better or worse, for real or not, a golden age. Uh, and so there's this this um, static, this sort of fris- frisson there. Um, mm-hmm. And I think uh, I I, think I read a really interesting line the other day that said, uh, you know, it's very hard to define decadence, um, but one author defined it as a conflicted relationship between um, the modernity and the past, and I think that really sums up what 's interesting to me about the nineteenth century it was did have this this very conflicted relationship with the industrial revolution and the the changes that were happening in the world, but there still was this pushback and this adoration for um, the tangible and for opulence and for beauty and for arts and crafts, you had the arts and crafts movement. You had all these, these wonderful notions of beauty. And um, I feel like a lot of that was lost after, you know, after Mm -hmm. the 19th century into the early 20th Mm -hmm. century. Once you get into sort of art deco and, moving further into modernity and the modern project, it just, um, it lost me. The reductionism <coughs> lost me. And mm-hmm. there's, uh, there's something in the aesthetic movement. That's just uh, um, delightful. And I, I just really yeah. identify with it.
0: You play the violin. So I, I can ask you, uh, do you also, do you also see that in the musical development uh, of that period? Is that the same like individual arts for you?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting. I think that I see more, um, of the, the avant-garde and the music of the 19th century necessarily. Than, I think it's, it's more readily apparent there than it might be apparent in the literature, mm-hmm. uh, to the average sort of, uh, encounter. Um, my personal favorite era is Baroque. I like Baroque music.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely there. I think, um, again, and as, as time moved on and, and I'm actually not one of these people, there's, I have a big pet peeve. I have a pet peeve when people say I don't like modern art because typically they don't actually understand that modern art <laughs> isn't going anymore. That was the modern right. project ended, and right. then it was postmodernity. But, but I I'm not one which of which is people already says, gone now as yeah, well. exactly. Yeah. Um yeah. Yeah. So I'm not one of these people that com- that discounts everything that happened after, you know, you know, 1900. Uh, mm-hmm. Everything, you know, I, I, I see why things happened in the modern project. I see why we, we went through this reductionism in painting while we got away from the aesthetic movement, why things became more and more abstract and more and more, um, conceptual. Um, it doesn't mean I want to be part of it. It doesn't mean I want to celebrate it, but I understand it. And, mm-hmm. um, I, I see that it was inevitable. It was sort of the path that we were, we were taking as a Western culture, um, mm-hmm. for better or mm-hmm. for worse. Uh, it is what it is, what it is. Uh, but I am heartened to see that, um, Today, there's actually a lot of people moving back towards sort of a representational painting, but not in sort of a pastiche. not in a we're going to paint like the old masters and only do that. There's a wonderful movement of atelier schools in Europe and America where people are learning uh, representational painting and sculpture, like the Florence Academy of Art is one of them. And the artists are doing amazing work that, that actually sits well in this time. It's a response mm-hmm. to the time that we're mm-hmm. in, and it's pertinent to the time that we're in. Uh, in a way that you know, simply painting pastiches of you know um, Renaissance portraiture would not be,
0: I don't think I promised too much, did I? You all have also heard that Madeleine is taking violin lessons, so it seems normal that she also picked a violin piece to be played in the show. And this is a rather famous one. I gather that many of you, even those, who are not into classical music so much, will recognize it. The piece is, of course, from the 19th century, and it is by the famous violinist Niccolò Paganini. It is widely considered one of the most difficult pieces ever written for the solo violin. Caprice number 24 in A minor, played here for us by Maxim Venkarov. Do you recognize this piece? I was sure you would. Paganini's famous Caprice Number 24. That was Madeleine's pick for this little break in the interview. So let us return and continue this talk with the question about what occultism and the rest of the cultural aspects of the 19th century have in common. And I could not resist the temptation towards the end to ask Madeleine, who considers herself to be a devout Catholic and attends Latin Mass each Sunday, what the priest holding Latin Mass for her would think about her rather particular collection of objects. And also, what she thinks should happen with this collection once she will no longer be among us. Well, look forward to her answers. Immediately after the interview, the third piece of our eclectic musical program for today will again be a hit from the realm of classical music, but from a very different period. Dance Macabre by French composer Camille Saint-Saëns will be the choice. But before that, we now return to London to meet again with Madeleine Le Dispenser. Well, maybe that question of the, the art in the 19th century brings us to the subject of occultism a bit because in a way, in the 80s, starting in the early 1870s, maybe with Madame Blavatsky and then mm-hmm. with the creation of the Golden Dawn and all that came out of it and Crowley and all of that, um, that also started in that very period, in, in, in that same period. So somehow um, one could think that... Um, the 19th century, as you describe it, with that frisson, you said, that friction between the old and the new. Mm-hmm. To sum it up, well, very very much summing up. Um, was that also a basis that could open the gate to a revival of classical occultism at, in that period? Would you think that's that's the reason why it happened?
2: Um, I am... Um do I think that the, the changes in, in the art world influence the changes? No, no, no.
0: But the, the same reason that changed the art world would also mm-hmm. change the spiritual world in, in oh, that sense.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the occult revival is completely a reaction against positivism and rationalism mm-hmm. and secularism. Um, it was absolutely a pushback. Um, and I, I think, um, just to, as an aside to speaking of art, I think one of my favorite parts, my favorite thing about the Golden Dawn is what Melina Mathers brought to it as a painter the, mm-hmm. her I believe that pretty much all the color theory that's in the Golden Dawn came from her because it's just the flashing colors and, and all of that is just gorgeous I, I really love is, love uh, that um, but but yeah occultism changed well came into the to the to the forefront and, and, and gained so much momentum I think specifically because people were having this Conflicted relationship with the age that they lived in, um, and, you know, for example, Huysmans when he set out to write *Le Bas*, he didn't mm-hmm. intend to write a book about Satanism or occultism. He was going to write a book about the Nandorfist cause, the reseeding the king on the throne of France. Mm-hmm. And um, there was so much crossover with that world and the world of the occultists, The book became a book about occultism. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think a lot of times that that might be lost um, when people are looking back. And, um, and trying to understand um, the, the occult revival, the French occult revival especially, probably more so the French occult revival than the, than, the, than the British one, um, is that there is uh, there is definitely this sort of religious underpinning in it and this political underpinning in it that, um, that isn't always you know, readily apparent. Um, I think Christopher McIntosh's book, uh, Alice Levi and the French occult revival is like still the best text on the era mm-hmm.
3: as, a, as an
2: introduction I think that book mm-hmm. is still stands head and shoulders above everything else
0: right right interesting interesting so how do you place yourself uh, in the world of the occult are you a practitioner are you interested are you what's what's your how do you define your role because I, I I'm not Myself, hundred percent sure about that.
2: Um, I get asked this question often, like um, out and about, just in the circles that I, I tend to run mm-hmm. in. That question comes up, and mm-hmm. um, I always just say that I am. Uh, I go to mass every Sunday. I say my rosary.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I, uh, I I I think that I am. Uh, I think I'm Catholic more than uh, I would say that I'm an occultist. But, mm-hmm. you know, you and I both know that there's 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 something else going on underneath that. Sure. Um, my approach to that isn't necessarily, um, I think it's it's particularly traditionalist. You know, I, I, I prefer the extraordinary form. Actually, I, I won't go to a Novus Ordo Mass. I don't think yeah. it's valid. Um, so you go,
0: to Latin, you go to Latin Mass?
2: Yes, yeah, Correct. you mm-hmm. go to Latin Mass. And there's mm-hmm. actually a wonderful number of options for that here in, in London mm-hmm. now. Um I think um, I consider myself probably a a, a mystic uh, Mm -hmm. in some capacity and profoundly shallow in other capacities. (laughs) Uh, I don't really, I don't feel comfortable calling myself an occultist, even though I write about the occult, Um, Mm -hmm. even though I, you know, I have many friends and people that I respect very much who write about the occult and consider themselves occultists, but to me, it's just it's there's there's so much else tied up in that that I don't feel like identifies in what I do as clearly as you know I'm a I'm a Catholic who wallows in spiritual ruin. <laughs> mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So w- without wanting to push you in any direction, don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. there must be in my feeling from what you say mm-hmm. there must be something that attracts you to a certain extent, and that's also why you write about it. That's also why you have those friends because uh-huh. visibly the exchange with them um, uh-huh. must be n- nourishing to your oh, thoughts and ideas. Yeah. So what is it in occultism that would attract you or would fascinate you? You do tell me the word that you would choose for it.
2: I think the initial attraction, like mm-hmm. most people, uh, I think most of us probably encountered the occult as, as teenagers. We encountered it, encountered it quite young. Uh, there was something about the taboo of it that drew me. Um, there was something forbidden, especially from my experience growing up, being very religious, having a very yeah, religious yeah, upbringing. Yeah, yeah.
3: Um,
2: you know, my I, I I fell asleep once listening to Israel Regardi's Golden Dawn tapes, and I remember my mom woke me up and said. Who is Ra and why is he talking about him? She thought it was like it was some weird ritual tape or something. It, was, it really freaked her out. Um, but what, what I mean, I personally I think that um, the the occult, the esoteric, or the, the the is 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 indistinguishable from you know from to me from from Catholicism. There is, Catholicism is a a, um, a mystical and an occult practice. Um, The priest has always been considered or was always considered a magician the the communion rail is literally a boundary between our world and the next it is a magical act the mass is a magical act and and um blasphemy properly performed is a magical act Uh, as being you know a a little um you know um, obtuse by, by mm-hmm. trying to mm-hmm. deny the, the occult aspects of that. But absolutely. And I think my interaction with occultists, I mean, I, I love the history and I love the, the, um, just how baroque and how involved the grimoires are and the history of Solomonic magic and the histories of the magical orders. I find it all very, uh, very interesting. And um, I always find that, uh, that occultists have a, a particularly interesting, you know, they're usually very well educated Either uh, are autodidacts or, you know, they're educated in, you know, a formal manner, but they're usually wonderful conversationalists with, you know, notable exceptions. But, um, <laughs> I, uh, I think, um, for me, the draw has just been, you know, it's, it's been, like I said, flies to honey. It's just drawn me naturally. It's been something that's been, that interested me very much. So, especially, you know, as I grew older and, and, and read more and found, you know, how much, um, of the art and the literature that I that I appreciated had that overlap. I mean, I think occultism probably drew me to it, a lot of that because I, you know, I found, you know, uh, Baudelaire, Rimbaud, around the same time that I I was, you know, first reading um, Crowley as a mm-hmm, teenager. Mm-hmm, so a lot mm-hmm. of those things sort of came around at the same time. Um, and then there's, you know, the 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 occultism in 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 Strindberg. You know, there's there's a wonderful Strindberg book um, from an occult diary. It's right. fantastic exploration of, um, obsession. And, um, I think anyone who's had what Bataille would call like a peak experience, I think so much occultism results in these peak experiences where you, you rev yourself up and you spin yourself up into this really emotionally intense state and start experiencing all these synchronicities and experiencing all these, uh, all this connectivity. And it can, you know, can and probably often does result result in a certain type of break. Um, but, book is really interesting because there are all these synchronicities there are all these moments where he becomes obsessed with details mm-hmm. and becomes obsessed with the minutiae of what he encounters in the world um, and I find that you know I very much identified with that having you know with my own experiences in occultism which has always mm-hmm. been it's never been a low key ongoing thing it always goes in cycles it's spin up very intensely and then spin down and then spin up very intensely mm-hmm. yeah. and, and usually have these peak experiences at the crescendo of each one and I think that's why you know They've always said that you know occultism mm-hmm. will destroy you. Um, right. I think that there is the capacity to um, to be you know eaten up by that by that furnace by that intensity. Uh, and I think that's really appealing. <laughs> uh,
0: I find it very interesting what you say. Well, uh, if I if I might want to smile, I'd say if all the youngsters that have started reading Baudelaire would become devout Catholics, the Catholic Church wouldn't have the the, the membership problem <laughs> they have nowadays. But but so it must be something in there in you that 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 is different from how others experience that. But yeah. uh, I I would. Agree. I mean I grew up as a Catholic myself. I'm no I'm no longer am am that, but I grew up also so I have the background and experience that this country where I am talking from is also a very Catholic country. Mm -hmm. So I I know what you're talking about, really. Um and I can really understand what you mean because I also think that in all religious not even only mysticism, but um, in all religious tradition, let's put it that way, there is occultism and magic. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't, it can't work differently. But mm-hmm. um, I also get the impression, but correct me because you are much more involved in that than I am. Um, I also get the impression that the Catholic Church, uh, and you're also, also only speaking about Catholicism and not about Christianity, which I find interesting. And um, mm-hmm. so um, mm-hmm. you, you, you has done a lot to, Cleanse um, mass or their ritual or their grimoires to to really take the provocative word um, of all those aspects wouldn't you wouldn 't you agree to that and if so, if you would agree, why do you think they 've done that
2: well i mean I think um, I think the Second Vatican Council was uh, definitely a purging of of a lot of the magic a lot of the 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 truly numinous out of um the catholic experience uh it stripped away the the magical language of latin mm-hmm. i mean it would, it would, didn't say that you could not do mass in latin but that ended up being how many people interpreted it uh and that is a magical language i mean you're, it's, if if everyone in the world is saying this ritual in the same language in the same way on the same day it's you know and it's it's in you know, an ancient tongue well, I mean, it's ecclesiastical Latin, but still, they, uh,
0: sorry, go on. No, no, I just was going to ask a question. Why do you think um, it was more important then to those people that the, the, the people who are in church in mass understand what is being said as opposed to mm-hmm. using the magic language? Why, what, why no, was I think, that? I
2: think it's the, the, the vanity of the masses. They think they're special. I think mm-hmm. they deserve to understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think sometimes, mm-hmm. I think people just felt like they were entitled to a special experience where they felt engaged. Um, they weren't willing to come to the ritual and bring their own devotion, they weren't willing to come to it and, and, and experience it. And open themselves to it. So I think that it's, it's that. And there's, you know, there's a lot of humorous memes that go around online about the Boomer Catholics and the, you know, the Susan from the Paris Council and things like that. It's a very funny subculture <laughs> around traditionalism and and Catholicism and and the pushback towards a more um, sort of pre-Vatican II approach. Um, but I mean, even before that, I mean, I think that
3: yeah, there's a, that
2: there's a, a stripping away. Um, which is, is, is fine because um, I'm not particularly interested in, in, in whether or not everyone who engages in, in the, the Church of Rome understands it in the same manner that, that I approach it because uh, it's like, you know, Abbé Boulogne, his, um, his seer, um, Jules Thibault, used to say that, that um, Lourdes was the, the virgin for the many, but La Salat was the virgin for the few. Mm. And that really sums up sort of my idea of this occult Catholicism is that it is a harsh and brutal and transformative grotto within the idea of Catholicism. It's not going to be something that's, you know, everyone's going to engage with, but it is something that that certain people have been called to for you know ages. So even you know Boulogne and, and Julie, they had this notion of this sort of almost medieval uh, Catholic experience. Uh, tinctured with uh, this um, erotic paracletism this idea of the, the Holy Spirit being an erotic presence and a sexual presence that's transformative. Mm-hmm. So it definitely moves beyond, um, you know, the, the, the standard. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, you are so literate and you know all those things from the tip of your finger and um, those names everything we will need to help a little bit on the show oh, i'm notes sorry for, i'm sorry no 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 I, you uh, shouldn't no don't be sorry my goodness and um, but we need to help a bit our listeners who might not be aware of all those names so much so you you would help me a bit with the show notes to to put just those names a bit together um yeah absolutely, so I'm saying this now during the interview, so people know they have to go to see the show notes and and, and read also them because it would be a pity to miss that um,
2: yeah if you'd like to know more about boulon and, and and julie and and mm. the idea of a, of arato paralytism um mm-hmm. i've got an essay in The Luminous Stone from Three Hands Press that talks about Boulon um and uh and um maria de nagloaska as sort of this trifecta of of <sighs> sexual would, right catholic
0: cultism, cultism right oh that would be extremely interesting. and yes we have to put that link also in the show notes. so mm-hmm. please yeah. listeners make sure to go into the show notes this time okay um great well this is very really fascinating interesting um I also wanted to talk to you for a few minutes about the bibliophile that you are and the collector of objects that you are. Um, because uh, I know that mostly, I'm not a Londoner myself, so I know it from, from your uh, website, from Facebook and from everywhere you publish those things. And it's fascinating. Tell us a bit about it. Tell us also a bit about for those we have not yet seen those pictures what you are collecting and why and w- what's the aim of it
2: I um, collect all manner of things I collect books I collect uh, usually texts from the 19th century French and English mostly French mm-hmm. uh, I collect a lot of sort of Catholic mysticism French occult revival um, uh, anti clerical pornography. I'm a big fan of that. Just there's a whole genre of pornography that's wrapped up in friars and nuns fucking each other with various objects that are of various degrees of being sacred. Um, uh, I collect, gosh, what else? Um, medical. Sort of oddities, Mm -hmm. tribal skulls, human skulls. I I feel very maternal about skulls. I see a skull and I just want to take it and take care of it. So I end up with lots of those. And taxidermy. I have a a taxidermist. Somebody was laughing at me the other day because I said, well, I'm going to have my taxidermist do this. And she's like, (laughs) Madeline, you have a hairdresser. You have a beautician. You don't have a taxidermist. And I was like, I have a taxidermist. So you know, he made my uh, my Yeshua, my crucified pig. I woke up one morning and thought, I need a crucified pig. Mm-hmm. And um,
0: why do you, you need it?
2: Because I mean, isn't that, wouldn't you want a crucified pig? Like, who would want so magnificent? <laughs> it just struck me. It, I become obsessed with an idea. I become obsessed uh, with an image. Yeah.
3: yeah. Uh,
2: and this image, of, it was, it was like, it was so very. Um, uh, Ken, Ken Russell, it was so very The Devils, it was so very Felician Ross, it was Felician so Ross actually that, that mm-hmm. kicked it off because he has all those pigs and I and I love pigs too because they're so smart and we treat them so poorly and mm. I think that they're lovely and they've got that little porcine kind of smirk and yeah. so um, I had my taxidermist make me a, a crucified pig named Yeshua um, so I collect all of these sorts of things, uh, it's sort of like whatever seizes my attention gets, gets me um, you know makes me feel excited and I want to have mm-hmm. it and place it in in my space and the idea is for me is that that very considered deliberate manner of living I want to create a space which is a museum, which is a cabinet of curiosities, but it's very specifically a museum against the world or against nature, if you will, um, because it does contrast things that don't necessarily belong together, but they are a reflection of my experience of the world and how I want to experience my space. I think um, having complete control and crafting your space is... A wonderful power, and it's an occult act. It's an esoteric act. It's uh, just like someone spending a lot of time, you know, painting their magical circle and, and creating their temple space. To me, creating my home is 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 an ongoing process of just making a, ref- a reflection of myself. And, and it's a personal temple somehow. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, mm, um, mm. So yeah, there's um, right now. It's uh, it's been I've been I've been picking up uh, tribal. Artifacts. I really like um, sort of asthmat skulls. I think uh, they're particularly interesting if they're tribal, if they're um, headhunter skulls, because you know that person was killed for their head. So if you buy a, you know, a medical skull, it's somebody who potentially donated themselves to science, or maybe it's you know, if it comes from a certain era, it's probably you know an illicit bone trade from India or China. But you know, an asthmat skull—that's somebody who had their head taken in a ritual act.
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Uh, A lot of Thai
2: necromantic amulets too. I spent a lot of time with uh, my friend, um, Jenks, who uh, wrote the Thai occult book and he's been lovely supplying all sorts of really delightful little bits and bobs from cemeteries in, in Thailand. So just all these things, but also like, you know, things that would be, you know, Actually, you might class as, as, as conventionally beautiful as well. I don't only have grotesque things. It's the contrast yeah. between them, the way they, they interlock together that makes them exciting to me.
0: Mm-hmm. May I ask a provocative question? Of course, please do. What do you think the priest who is reading Latin Mass for you on Sunday would say about the crucified pig if he, if he came home and saw it?
2: Well, I go to confession. I confess. Okay. I have a lovely young Italian confessor who always wants details. He always wants details. (laughs) So I don't necessarily uh, get extremely detailed, or specific, because of the time limitations. Unfortunately, they actually, they put a time limitation on your confession, which I think is ridiculous, because I've got so much to say. And I love talking about myself. So I get in that booth, and it's just, it smells wonderful. And there's this Italian man on the other side of the, 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 the mesh and I just want to go on and on. But, um, but I'm sure that they would be, would not be pleased. But I think that it's important when I, um, I think it's important that I experience mass uh, absolved. And then deliberately sin, um, because I do believe in you know the the power of absolution and confession, because if I didn't, none of it would mean anything. So the sin would mean nothing. Uh, and there's also a question as to whether or not it is even possible to, to truly be – I've been doing some writing on this that I hope to publish at some point mm-hmm. – if it's possible to actually be um, – like the Catholicism Noir, if you can be the black Catholicism, because the transformative power of the sacraments are, they would potentially make everything that they touch um, holy. Um, so can you what, define what?
0: in two lines Catholicism Noir? Can you define that in two lines
2: for yeah every um, line? Is that possible? It's, it doesn't really necessarily work in French, um, but it literally means the black Catholicism which also means the universal black Catholicism simply means universal. And mm-hmm. to me, it's an idea exactly. of, um, for lack of, a, you know, for the sake of clarity, a left-handed Catholicism mm-hmm. or, um, um, a devotion to the shadow. I always say that, you know, my experience in the church has always been, um, I feel the shadow creeping around the edges. I feel they say, you, you know, you build a, you build a church and Satan builds a, a temple or Satan builds a cathedral. You know, I, I sense that presence of the shadow and feel drawn to that presence of the shadow. Mm-hmm. And, um, for me, my experience of the numinous is tied up. My experience is that transcendental moment, that transcendent moment, I mean, is um, is to break the thing that, that you yearn towards. Um, so I do have this like very honest and heartfelt feeling of, of, of going to Mass and experiencing the sacrament. And I do um, honestly believe that when you wound the sacrament when you um when you act out or push back against the that sacred that you are actually damaging something spiritual in yourself or in the world and um i think that there's a lot to be said for that i think there's a lot to be said for that that limit experience going back to Georges bataille he talked about the mm. limit experience being that moment of extreme um emotional peak that's transformative. And I didn't get that in, in occultism. I didn't get that in Goetia. I didn't get that in you know, my very, very brief dalliance with Dilemma. I didn't get that. But I always felt in a foxhole, I was still Christian. I still had that sense of Christianity. Mm-hmm. But I also have this sense of the fact that there is sort of a light, there is a type of, 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 of Christ like living that I will never have and can never be. And I feel um, this wonderful sense of the Kantian sublime, this sort of sense of elation, of lifting up inside. um, If I take something that I truly do believe to be sacred and defile it. And I think that that is, um, it's not adolescent contrarianism. It's not going out and saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, punch back against the church. Mm. Fuck Jesus. No, it's, i love you so i will wound you and it will wound me and in my wound i will find something outside myself mm-hmm. does that make sense
0: i think so yeah. definitely yeah absolutely what would you like to stay of Madeleine lady spencer the day you will have left this world what do you think people should keep from you
2: Oh, I hope that the there'll be. I hope that there'll be a uh, a collection with my name on it in the BNF. I'll <laughs> donate my library to the Bibliothèque Nationale, and hopefully, I'll have my. I don't want it shunted off into the Lambert collection. I want it to be the Le Dispenser collection.
0: Okay, so it's Bibliothèque Nationale de France. We have to say yeah, for the yeah. French National Library. Okay.
2: Yeah, and I'd like there to be a a, a legacy. I'm, I'm terrified of, of not existing. I, mm-hmm. I don't like the idea of not being. And what's most terrifying is if you have to die, there'll be a point at some time when someone says your name for the last time. So I want to extend that moment as far into the future as I possibly can. Well, you
0: should, of course. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, 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 yeah. And should your home, your private temple with all the collection in it have some meaning for or will that bri- or will that kind of disappear when you
2: disappear? I think about that. You know, I think a lot of times people expect their collections to stay together after they die. But it was my um, rationale that put it together. It relates um, to my experience of the world. That's why I'm asking. Exactly. That's it's,
0: exactly why I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I think um, in reality, I expect it to probably be broken up. I would, you know, I've thought about making some sorts of plans for it because, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Who
0: wants yeah. to live for a long sure, time? Sure, 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 um, sure, sure, sure.
2: No, but no the sorry. Of it
3: is-
0: uh, I didn't want to make the end of this interview, whatever, dire or whatever. It, it, it just it interested me because you're a very thoughtful person. So I thought you might, I'm sure you have thought about that at some point. No, it's point.
2: fine. I'm here for yeah, a good time, yeah. not a long time.
0: <laughs> good. So, um, but now the real final question. Um, I'm always asking my guests here um, what should our audience look out for in the near future are there any projects books uh, exhibitions whatever that you would like to underline that people should have an eye on in the next couple of months or a or year whatever
2: um yeah i've got my my book on abe boulogne which has been going for quite a while i have purchased mm-hmm. um a, an entire archive of his rituals mm-hmm. abe boulogne being the 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 defrocked Catholic priest that mm-hmm. inspired uh, the majority of Le Bas by Huismont. That mm-hmm. should be coming out uh, within a year. Uh, mm-hmm. I've got um essay coming out. I've got Witch Icon coming out soon through Three Hands Press, where I've got right. a bit in there on on Felician Rops, and I was one of the editors. I took I uh, did the 19th century section in there, mm-hmm. collating images of the witch and, and witchcraft from that era. Um My paper from the Magical Women's Conference last year should be published. Uh, That was on Berthe Courier, the um, satanic woman of Bohemian Paris, who is also, Mm -hmm. she figured, as a character in Le Bas. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll be speaking at the Left Hand Path Consortium in March, I believe. Right. Um, Where is it happening this time? It's in the south. blank on uh,
0: the location right right, right. But if you do, uh, S- south carolina i think it is i'll, I'll look it up yep mm-hmm. it's in
2: england it's in the south of england so
0: it's uh, england. Oh, sorry i thought it was in England. Yeah. i was speaking about another another type. in mm-hmm. okay okay i didn't know no, we had one in england too yeah yeah yeah,
2: yeah this one yeah. is they're traveling it around the world apparently yeah. uh and i'll be at the next magical women's conference um, yeah. uh, where i'll be speaking on the poisons affair uh, very fascinating bit of history, where uh, um, probably one of the first satanic panics, where um, people were convinced that there was a uh, black masses being said to influence the king of France yes, and uh, the exactly. court. That's so a wonderful story.
0: It's a very nice story, and of course, there's also the book about absinthe that you mentioned earlier, right?
2: Oh yeah, there's there's the the essay coming out about um, absinthe and the and the spirit and the history of the drink. Right, and right. Uh, yeah. Uh, that hopefully great. people find that informative and enjoyable.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, lots of things to look forward to. Yeah. Thanks. Well, Madeleine, thank you so much for that hour in your company. It was great to have you here, and thank you. Uh, it was really fascinating and very intellectually, positively challenging. And uh, I hope everybody who listened to had the same experience. Thank you for being so open about that. And I have certainly met the most fascinating Catholic I've met in a long, long time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> thank you for having me. It's been lovely chatting with you.
0: Of course. Thank you. Bye now. Thanks
2: so much. Bye-bye.
0: Danse macabre, famous piece by French composer Camille Saint-Saëns, with also a famous violin solo, of course. I do hope you enjoyed our visit to Madeleine today. I can only say I did. I found all of this very inspiring, joyful, interesting. And it makes me want to read on with certain things she mentioned. This is always what I find so interesting when I do these interviews. I not only get to know new and fascinating people, but each time I get to know a new realm of thoughts and knowledge, I hope you can also take the same advantage out of it once again. Do go to the web page for the show notes, Madeleine, especially prepared for us this time. It will help you to find out much more about all those historical facts. Personalities and thoughts she was mentioning, and it would be a pity to miss that. So, this will be the end of today's episode. Thank you all once again for listening. In episode 11, as I already said earlier, we will welcome Nick Farrell, one of the best specialists in all matters Golden Dawn, ceremonial magic in general, and many other things. Come back in two weeks and listen to us talking. And before that, next Sunday already, it will be our fourth issue of the Thoth Hermes Ex Libris Edition. Yes, the fourth already. Four new books and partly their authors will be presented. Watch out for the titles being announced during the coming week on Facebook and Twitter. For today, I'm saying goodbye to you. It was a pleasure to have you with me today. Our outro music is tuning in and I say, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.